Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, I'm Susan Glasser, the editor of Politico, and I'm delighted to be guest hosting this week's edition of the Politico 2016 Nerdcast, where we get together our brightest minds here in the newsroom at Politico and talk geeky stuff, like what numbers really matter this week in the campaign. Okay, so first of all, we're going to talk about $448 million versus $263 million. Ken Vogel will explain more what that means, but the bottom line is quite simply this. Hillary Clinton's fundraising advantage over Donald Trump is much, much bigger than you think. Donald Trump may be the billionaire in the race, but the structural advantage is all Democratic this time around. Here's another set of numbers to consider, and this comes from Eli Stokels, our lead beat reporter on the Trump campaign. Nine and 90. Nine is the number of rapid response emails that came boom, boom, boom out of the Donald Trump communication shop in the midst of Hillary Clinton's 90-minute speech attacking Donald Trump this week. Why does it matter? Because we're desperately, absolutely looking for evidence, any sign of evidence that Donald Trump is starting to look, well, a bit more presidential, especially after his big campaign shakeup this week where he fired his campaign manager. Charlie Matician offers us two numbers that I find particularly illuminating, 7,116 versus zero. 7,000 is the number of campaign ads that Hillary Clinton has been barraging the key battleground states with. Donald Trump has run zero ads so far. Does it matter? We're going to talk about it. And finally, Scott Bland, our expert on all things House and Senate race this year, comes to us with the number one. One is the only Senate candidate in the country who's actually had the courage to appear in public with one of his with one of the major party nominees. And we'll talk about it as we get into this week's edition of the Politico 2016 Nerdcast. I'm delighted to be here today with Ken Vogel, our chief investigative correspondent. That's me, thank you. Eli Stokels, uh, one of our senior political reporters. And also, like Ken, a big fan of kale. You know, big, big, kale. big kale. Big kale. Big kale. Big kale. Charlie Matician, our senior politics editor and uh, geek in chief. Wow. Hi, Susan. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. Uh, this has been another week for the record books. And uh, I think what it really has probably reinforced for all of us journalists here at Politico is there's not going to be any down weeks in campaign 2016, right? Uh, there's no quiet times. This Monday morning opened up bright and early with Donald Trump shaking up his campaign, Hillary Clinton climbing right on board with basically her pivot to the general election. And I think it's very revealing some of the stuff we've seen this week. But I want to start first with Ken and this question of just what are we supposed to make of this troubled, contentious in fighting Donald Trump campaign, does it matter what really happened and went on behind the scenes in this chaos and firing your campaign manager 
after, by the way, having a huge victory and surprising everybody and knocking out 16 other candidates to get the Republican nomination, why do you fire the guy? Yeah, I think the, the writing was on the wall for Corey Lewandowski for a while. I mean, he had been sparring with Paul Manafort, the really the guy who was brought in to kind of right the ship and professionalize the Trump campaign. At that point, uh, there were, Corey Lewandowski actually told people that he was thinking of quitting at that point because he was he felt so marginalized. But instead of doing that, he dug in and really uh, deployed what we call a no-holds-barred uh, no style of infighting that seldom seen in presidential politics and utilized his loyalty, uh, the loyalty that he had of, uh, among the small group of folks, the skeleton staff who he brought in, and also his unusually close relationship with Trump, which he sought to make even closer. During plane rides, Corey Lewandowski was so paranoid about anyone else getting close to Trump and getting in his ear and, t and giving Trump conflicting advice from what Corey was giving him or belittling Corey to Trump, that he would make sure he was sitting next to Trump at all times. And if he had to go to the bathroom, he would make sure that Hope Hicks, the campaign spokeswoman who was a close ally of Corey's, would come in and swap out and sit next to Trump to guard Trump against anyone talking trash on Corey. Uh, that said, it kind of got tiring for, for Corey. And he grew, according to some of the folks who I talked to who are you know sympathetic to Corey, Corey grew a little bit reckless in his efforts to hold on to power, even going after seeking to undermine Trump's own kids, who he saw as a threat. So when it actually happened, and it's important to note here that contrary to some of the media reports that it happened because uh, the, the kids really engineered it and the, the Don Trump Jr. actually executed, no pun intended, executed the firing without Trump being present, our sources told us, just show uh, how much more power the kids have, have gained in the campaign, how Corey was already sort of marginalized, and I think also show the degree of infighting. As to whether it matters, I think it does matter. I, you cannot overstate the amount of time and energy that this campaign spent on infighting. I mean, it we would, Eli, me, Ben Schreckinger, the folks who covered this campaign, we would sit back and marvel. How do they have so much time to be either feeding negative stories on each other to the press or engaging in these efforts to undermine each other? Don't they have a campaign to run? It was like all that they were doing. And so with him out of the picture, I think it does minimize, potentially minimize the infighting, although the kids are also their own sort of faction, so there might be some left over there. Well, it's interesting. You bring up this question of uh, Corey's substantive role in the campaign, right? And he is identified not only with this crazy infighting, but basically the let Trump be Trump faction. And... That's the big question right now, Eli, isn't it? As you as you think about covering the campaign, uh, what does it mean? This fantasy idea that Donald Trump is somehow going to be different. Uh, you know, are there any signs that that's really taking place? Number one, number two, uh, what have you learned in covering the campaign about uh, Donald Trump as the guy running the operation? I, I think Ken's uh, story is very revealing and very interesting about. Uh, how the firing went down. Remember, Donald Trump is the guy who was famous on TV, right, for saying, you're fired. Uh, you know, he's the decider, he's the boss. Well, how come he had to have his kid uh, do the firing when a painful decision was required? Well, if there's not a TV camera in a pretend boardroom, maybe he's less interested in being that person. I mean, when Rick Wiley was hired, 
Donald Trump didn't have it, never met the guy when he was fired. Never, it, Donald Trump didn't do it. I mean, this is a guy who sort of likes to, you know, and, and we're, you just have to go back to sort of TV, but you can see in the campaign too, when there's cameras there, he walks in, he waves, he wants to look like he's in control, but it's a handshake. It's a, how are things going? Okay, great. And move on. It's very surface level. And you can see, you know, yes, the, the kids have been empowered in this campaign and are taking on a larger role, but Donald Trump, sort of is the figurehead here. Um, and Donald Trump is sort of driving his own messaging based on what he thinks. Uh, but in terms of personnel and how to build out a campaign and what to do, Donald Trump doesn't really have a clue. Donald Trump doesn't understand what you need in terms of an organization or data. Donald Trump just thought for a long time that, well, I did it my way. I fired off some tweets. I did a lot of interviews. I drowned everybody else out in the media. And I won. So I'll just keep doing it. And part of the problem was that Corey Lewandowski was really enabling that thinking. Corey's power play really was to not only be close to Trump, but to sort of validate every thought and idea that Donald Trump had, whether it was, you know, let's let's start banning journalism, journalism outlets. Let's start just saying this news organization can't. I mean, that was something that if Manafort had been in charge, he would have said probably, you can't do that, boss. But with Lewandowski, he said, great idea. Let's do it. And you can play that. There are a lot of iterations of that where I think Corey was validating Trump's, you know, the id part of Trump and allowing him to sort of just go with his sort of most impulsive thoughts and behaviors and tweets. And I think that's where eventually the kids had to sort of come in and impress on their father, where Reince Priebus had to start making a case like, this is not how you do it. It's general election time now. And I think that they all came to sort of view Corey as um, sort of the clog in the drain in terms of Donald, you know, moving and changing and becoming a little bit more general election So you mode. brought some uh, numbers to the table here that seem relevant. Is there a change or isn't there a change? Well, the idea that this 70-year-old man is suddenly going to change, you know, shapeshift, shed his skin, whatever, become a different person, run on different ideas is sort of ludicrous. Um, so the idea of a new Trump is kind of a joke. But um, you did notice immediately the clog in the drain. When you remove the clog, here's what happens. The you know over the last uh, you know ever since Corey was fired, basically this week, we've gotten 20 emails, 20 emails from the Trump communications department. Everything from rapid response. Nine of them came in like the 90 minute period when Hillary Clinton was giving her speech on Tuesday, and they were all these sort of you know, taking apart her speech or hear a bunch of reference points or hear some data undercutting what she was saying. We never saw that before. It was Although there. I'd like to point out that I'm still not receiving those emails. So <laughs> perhaps there is some reluctance to fully embrace and engage with the free press still that lingers. And if anyone from the Trump campaign is listening to this podcast right now, I would like to personally make the case again to be added to the press list. Okay, but Charlie, I want to bring you in here for some historical perspective. Uh, it really is unusual, isn't it, for a campaign to actually fire its campaign manager after winning in the way that Trump's campaign has, right? Certainly this late in the campaign. I mean, you've seen it before. You see changes at the top. Uh, Ronald Reagan uh, did it in 1980, and things worked out pretty well for him. But generally, when, and you know, things even worked out in, in George, uh, John McCain's case in 2008. But again, those those uh, firings happened, happened so far before the general election that a campaign was able to sort of write itself and, uh, and, and change the direction, the messaging. And to do it now 
so close to the general election, so close to the convention with so many other variables in the air, really, I, I think, tells you a lot about the way the campaign is just doing this seat of the pants at a time when everyone in politics understands that it's just too big of an endeavor to run it by the seat of your pants. But it's also, you know, Paul Manafort was brought in months ago. And so for a while, I mean, as an equal to Lewandowski, or as Manafort said at the time, you know, I, the only person I answer to is the boss. He made it clear at the beginning that he was not coming in beneath the campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. And obviously we saw the infighting until Corey's dismissal. But, you know, when Ro Roger Stone was unceremoniously kicked off the campaign or kicked out of the you know the inner circle earlier. What did he do? He went right on TV and started singing Trump's praises, and he's been doing it ever since. And is still one of the very few touch points there is on Trump, even though he's technically outside of Trump Tower, outside of the campaign. Corey Lewandowski shows up this week at this uh, New York Republican Party fundraiser that they did the day after he got fired. Hope Hicks shows up along with a few other campaign folks, and Corey is sitting there for 45 minutes opining on the greatness of Donald Trump even though he just got fired. And so I think, you know, Corey now becomes kind of a, a liaison to the media, maybe a more friendly one, um, and definitely a surrogate for Trump who will be used over the next couple months. So in terms of like taking apart the campaign and starting from scratch, I would just say they have a guy in place who's sort of been assuming the responsibilities of running the campaign for a while. Two things. And Lewandowski on, still sticks around. I mean, Roger, role. you think so? You think Corey sticks not, around? Not an official role, but I mean, I think he's going to— Roger We're going to be talking about him and talking to him over the next several months. Here's the Roger Stone comparison that I think is extremely worrisome for the campaign. You talk about—you're right. Publicly, Roger Stone got the boot. He said nice things about Trump, continued to be a sort of surrogate for him. But what he did privately was dedicate himself to undermining Corey Lewandowski. Right. He had plants in the campaign who were farming out information to the press about Corey Lewandowski. If Corey turns around and does that to Paul Manafort, you could see a potentially disastrous result. Now, as far as whether the campaign will change, I think there was a chicken or the egg thing with, with, with Corey. I mean... You're right. Corey was, in fact, feeding what was, in fact, validating Trump's instincts, some of his most self-destructive and offensive instincts. Um, that said, the reason why Trump allowed him to stick around so long and let him be so close and became so loyal to him where he refused to fire him even after his kids urged him to for months and months was that he liked having those instincts validated. So what happens when Paul Manafort comes in and says, no, boss, don't say that the judge in the Trump University case is biased against you because he's of Mexican heritage. That's a stupid decision. Everyone recognizes a stupid decision. Trump doesn't want to hear that. And even if you tell him that, he's probably not going to listen. And it may undermine your ability or someone's ability to be able to speak to him like directly. Yeah, Corey totally used that as a wedge. And, and it worked well for him for a while saying, you know, boss, these other people telling you to do something different, they don't believe in you. But listen, I do. we've been sucked into the soap opera that is the Trump campaign. Listen to our conversation even, which is all about like, you know, this personality conflict that, you know, it's the reality show and we're now the participants in it. So Ken, I'm going to go back to the structure of politics. This is the nerd cast here. What are the consequences of having a dysfunctional, infighting, you know, soap opera of a campaign? We've all seen really, really bad campaigns that won. We've all seen really, really well-run campaigns that lost. Now, this week, some numbers came out, numbers that had, you know, D.C. campaign finance wonks freaking out. 
Donald Trump had only $1.3 million cash on hand, money in the bank for his campaign. Washington went crazy. My guess is the rest of the world probably didn't register this important news. You brought some numbers to share with us about money and the kind of stuff that campaign operatives take really seriously, even if they don't tune in to the personality dynamic type fighting that we're talking about. The numerical comparison that everyone was seizing on this week after the FEC reports came out was the disparity in cash on hand between the Trump campaign and the Clinton campaign. Trump had $1.3 million in the bank at the end of last month compared to Hillary Clinton's $42.5 million. That's a huge gulf, but and it's a problem. But I don't think it really tells the story of just how deep Trump's problems are financially. So what I did was I added up the amount raised by the campaigns, by their primary super PACs, and by their national party committees. And I found that the Hillary Clinton forces, that's Hillary Clinton, uh, Priorities USA, which is one of her super PACs, American Bridge was another super PAC, and the DNC added up to $448 million. On the flip side of the ledger, Trump's forces, $263 million. That's the Trump campaign, a pair of sort of fledgling super PACs and the RNC. And actually, that gulf is probably even wider than, than I've just ticked off the $448 million to the $263 million, because that's assuming that one of these Trump super PACs that just started that hasn't reported any money, but that has told people that it has $32 million in pledges. That's assuming that's real. I don't necessarily know that it is. And the reason why, and the reason why this is such a problem is that Trump really just has not dedicated any time to build any time, energy, effort, or money to building the type of campaign finance infrastructure that will be able to continually bring in money, not just bring in money at a good clip, but bring in money necessary to catch up to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, on the flip side, has been working for years. I mean, you could say eight years going back to 2008. You could say 30 years going back to her husband's first presidential run or the preparations for it to build this network of major donors who suddenly in this presidential election cycle, more than any other, have been empowered to write these huge checks uh, to support her campaign through super PACs. And that is something that is going to just continue. Well, that's what I want to get at. Charlie, why does it matter? Donald Trump likes to talk about numbers, but not this kind of numbers. He never talks about money except to say he's very, very rich uh, and to inflate his bottom line. You brought us some numbers that suggest why Hillary Clinton's financial advantage matters. Well, what's amazing, in addition to the the campaign uh, kitties that that both candidates have, is that not only are we uh, looking at the most lopsided fundraising start to a presidential election in the modern campaign finance era, we're also looking at an enormous disparity in terms of the number of ads that uh, the campaigns are running. So, for example, between May 8th and June 18th, Hillary Clinton's campaign aired 7,116 TV spots on broadcast and national cable TV. By contrast, the Donald Trump campaign aired exactly zero. Now, the the Clinton numbers don't even include the roughly 12,000 spots that were run by Priorities USA Action, which is the main super PAC backing Clinton. And so what you're talking about here is almost like a marathon. I mean, think about a 26.2-mile marathon. Hillary Clinton is starting at the 10-mile mark, while Donald Trump is at the uh, starting line himself. So she's got an enormous advantage here. And now I think you could probably argue that, you know, TV's losing its power uh, and its ability to move voters in this era. It's really tough to to break through all the noise. Um, 
and there are lots of forces diverting uh, voters' attention. But it's not like he is pouring resources into any sector of the campaign. It's not like that TV money that's not being spent is going toward a ground game or big data. I mean, there is no analytics uh, that is going to save him. There's nothing going on otherwise. And so here Hillary Clinton is blanketing the swing state landscape because that's where all these ads are running and getting out her message. And it's crickets on the Republican okay, side. So here's well, and I would just say, I mean, I think what Charlie's right. I mean, they had nothing in the primary, but they had confidence that what they did worked. They had a data program that was basically event bright. People would sign up and go to their events and they would get their information, the email address that way. And that worked. And I think there's just... The Trump campaign had overconfidence. Investors, the donor class, had no confidence. And that's why they haven't donated, because they haven't seen a campaign that was really serious and showing them the things that they usually see in campaigns. They didn't get the touches. Donald Trump, like you said, you know, likes to doesn't like to ask other people for money. He likes to talk about how much he has. So it's sort of not natural for him to be dialing for dollars and doing the outreach and give, and sucking up to these donors like they're used to having happen with other candidates. And, you know, in terms of not inspiring confidence, the last month, his performance, the bad story after bad story after bad story, I mean, it just has snowballed to a point where people are just, you know, why would you, why would there be any investor confidence in donor circles that putting money into Donald Trump's campaign is going to be a, a good investment in the end. Right. And I think it's all sort of, you know, now it's a chicken or egg thing because you hear stories like 1.3, 42.5, huge disparity, and it just makes it harder. Trump comes out and says, well, I'll just self-finance. And that undercuts the urgency because there's this urgency that we need to catch up. And he's like, ah, no, I got it. It'll be fine. So there's just, it just keeps getting compounded, this money problem. Okay, so we are going to wrap up this big first segment of all the stuff that's happened this week with sort of a question around this moment in the campaign. We have just a few weeks until the conventions. Hillary Clinton is basically running on Barack Obama's theory of the case, which is to say you've got to use this period of time to define your opponent. Forget about what happens late in the going. This is really the moment. That's why we've seen these major speeches from Hillary Clinton this week, and also from Donald Trump, attacking Hillary Clinton on all the records of Clinton scandal and the like. So I want to ask each of you very quickly, how's that war going to define the other guy? That's really what it comes down to this week. And Charlie, in addition to that, what is in all of those ads? Is this money well spent? What do you think? Well, the, the ads that came out after the news of the, the first big uh, tranche of, of uh, Clinton ads in, in this swing states were of two, two varieties. One of them was uh, had uh, some footage of, of Hillary Clinton looking presidential, but it also uh, had a lot of negative material on Donald Trump, uh, had lots of unfavorable clips of him, grainy footage of him saying really outrageous things. Uh, but it also had two other spots, more soft focus uh, biography spots with tinkling piano music and pictures of her throughout her life. And, you know, when you, when you look at them, they were, they were okay. But to me, they didn't really jump off the page. They didn't really advance her argument that, that much. In fact, you know, I, in, in some ways, I thought the, the message was really weak uh, and fell far short of what she's going to need to do to sort of change her own numbers because one, one of the tagline on one of them was, for Hillary, it's always been about the kids. Well, to me, like if you did, if you looked at the Simpsons parody of a campaign ad <laughs> for Mayor Quimby, it's always been about the children. You know, I mean, that is I not really going to move the dial. <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. Ken, 
What do you think? The war to define the other guy, how's it going this week? You know, I've been continually surprised by the comparisons that you hear from top Democrats to the success that, that Obama had defining Mitt Romney at this stage in, in 2012. And they basically are trying to, some of them are trying to use that same blueprint to define uh, to define Donald Trump. And they're u- literally using like some of the same words that he is a, you know, a greedy uh, vulture capitalist who doesn't care about workers and he's so wealthy he's out of touch. And to me, Trump has kind of inoculated himself from that precise type of criticism by bragging about how rich he is and how shrewd he is of making deals. So I don't necessarily think that that works. I do think that some of the ads that just use his words, uh, you know, suggesting that he is either misogynist or racist or xenophobic, I think that some of that sort of sinks in. And Hillary Clinton's most effective moment, I think, of the whole campaign uh came when she gave that speech where she was just quoting Donald Trump. And I thought that really worked. You're seeing some of that, but I think Democrats have to be wary of falling into this trap of using the Romney playbook. And I think, you know, Hillary's speeches have been fairly effective because Donald Trump at the same time wasn't capable of a response. And and what he was doing was playing right into her hands as defining himself in the same way with all the comments about the judge and then the very self-congratulatory response to the Orlando terror attack. These were bad moments for his campaign where she could basically stand up on a stage and just point and say, see, see what I'm talking about? This week, finally, you know, you have Corey Lewandowski fired. You have a speech on Wednesday that is for Trump, who, granted, has a pretty low bar when it comes to giving a, a speech and staying on message, that was on message for Trump. It was um, somebody, an operative told me that was surreal watching Donald Trump give a speech that was almost like a speech you'd expect from a presidential candidate. He was focused for an hour on attacking Hillary Clinton. And there were, there were lines in there. I mean, some of it sort of was undercut by embellishments and inaccuracies and, and you know, overstatements. But there were things there. When he said, when he took her slogan and said, I'm with her, and then he said, no, I'm with you, and he repurposed her slogan. Now the Trump campaign is selling a T-shirt with Trump saying, I'm with you. I mean, this is at least something that people can now hang their hat on saying, okay, he's starting to get it. He's starting to pivot and actually focus on Hillary and maybe even land some punches. And that obviously is what he's got to do. We have joining us now Scott Bland as well, who is Politico's chief guru on all things House and Senate races this year. And really, what an incredible subject that is turning out to be, Scott. Uh, the Donald Trump effect, how it's going to play down ballots. Uh, what level of panic is there among Republicans running for the Senate this year, running for the House? You brought us a number to consider. Yeah, the, so the, the number I, I brought this week is one, and that's the number of uh, Senate nominees, uh, major party Senate nominees, who have appeared with either Clinton or Trump in their many visits uh, on their swing state tours in the two weeks since the, the primaries ended in California. And that's Ted Strickland, the Democratic nominee in Ohio, uh, who appeared with Hillary Clinton uh, at, at her rally in Columbus earlier this week. But before that, Donald Trump went on a big swing of rallies and fundraising tours through four states that have major Senate contests coming up. He was in New Hampshire, North Carolina, 
Arizona, and then Nevada over the course of the last week. And the only Republican Senate candidate to appear in public at one of his rallies was John McCain's Tea Party primary challenger, Kelly Ward, who um, is currently getting savaged by, by McCain's super PAC ads, uh, painting her as a chemtrails conspiracy theorist and, uh, you know, kind of some some wacky national security votes in the in the state legislature. She was the only one. Everyone, and it's not just that they didn't show up to the rallies, because some Democrats haven't shown up to Clinton rallies either. Uh, she Clinton was in North Carolina this week, and uh, neither Roy Cooper, who's running for governor, or Deborah Ross, who's running for Senate, who no one knows, who could really, would probably like to borrow a crowd at this point, she didn't show up either. But they at least acknowledged that Clinton was in their state. They said, oh, you know, we had other events. This was scheduled too late. We're going to be there next time. The Republicans aren't even acknowledging the fact that uh, Trump is coming to their state. McCain spent uh, the the day that um, that Trump was in Phoenix. He was 20 miles down the road at the Swaggies, which are like a local chamber of commerce awards dinner that, uh, according to his office, he'd had on the books for months. And uh, you know, there's no way you know you can't just cancel an event and. Uh, this is going to repeat itself over and over and over. And this is a consequence of having the two most unpopular major party nominees basically ever in, in recent history. Is that right? Yeah, I think I was looking at the Huffington Post uh, uh, polling averages this morning, and I think uh, Trump is is hovering around 60% unfavorable. Uh, Clinton's at 54 unfavorable, which is not good, uh, but, it, but it's, better, it's better than... Uh, Trump's. I think we talked about last week. It's going to be interesting to see in the swing states if that moves at all, given that she's uh, putting all this money into positive advertising right now, or whether or not that's just a totally kind of hard and fast facet of, of the landscape at this point, like both of them being so unpopular. But I think, you know, you can see it in, in neither, neither party is, you know, their, their Senate people aren't totally embracing. I think the, the Democrats are doing it more. But on the flip side, the Republicans are taking every opportunity to hit Democratic candidates like Ted Strickland in Ohio for tying themselves to Clinton. Charlie, you've watched this for many years. What does it matter that you're in a national election year? How much can an unpopular nominee like Trump uh, blow a Senate race for a Republican Senate candidate who might otherwise have a, have a pretty good shot? Well, you see it has an enormous impact in the close races. Uh, and you've seen that in recent Senate cycles going back at least for, for a decade where uh, the presidential uh, race has a, uh, you know, a slight one or two point effect on lots of these races. And I think uh, we're beginning to see it, uh, especially in a place like Pennsylvania, uh, which is a key swing state, uh, has a key Senate race. And I thought it was really revealing uh, the news this week that there is a uh, freshman congressman there from a district in the Philadelphia suburbs and exurbs that was uh, Romney carried narrowly, was a, uh, was a Barack Obama district in 2008. He resigned from his role as a convention delegate. So that makes him the second House member in Pennsylvania to say they're not going to convention. And the reason you do that, if you're this congressman, his name's uh, Representative Ryan Costello, and he gave, of course, the classic political, I want to spend more time with my family, I want to spend time in the district, which is always the dead giveaway, uh, those two. But what you see from that is he is scared of the blowback and can't afford to. It is the members in lockdown conservative districts that can afford to go to the convention. The blowback won't hurt them. If it's really bad, they'll still squeak it through. But when you're on the margin, like a freshman from an exurban district where you're not sure exactly how Trump is going to play, you can't take that chance. And that's why he went so far as to resign his delegate position and not go to Cleveland. Although or like Mark conversely... Who well, actually, who actually rescinded his, uh, Mark Kirk rescinded his uh, endorsement of, uh, 
of uh, Donald Trump, you know, facing a tough reelection fight in Illinois. Uh, in Ohio, Rob Portman under pressure. You talk about Ted Strickland and they're trying to link Ted Strickland to Hillary. Rob Portman is under pressure to rescind his endorsement. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, another swing state where he's up for a, a tough re-election fight, uh, is trying to draw the distinction, the distinction between supporting, saying he'll support Donald Trump and saying he'll endorse Donald Trump. So you see already him being an albatross in a way that I just don't think Hillary Clinton is. Here, here's the thing. Uh, I, I think the, the Costello... Uh, example that Charlie just brought up is fascinating because the, this is the nerd cast, and so this morning I was I was you know going through some old FEC filings uh, before I came into work. That's, you do that every morning. Come and, on, and uh, and I, I was looking at at this district. This is one of those, and and Democratic operatives looking at these down ballot races are starting to see a little bit of separation going on between what's happening in really uh, more blue collar areas where Trump is, is kind of scaring them a little bit with how he's doing in their polling and, and places with more college-educated voters where the, he's really hurting at, at this point. And these uh, Philadelphia Collar County districts like Costello's are one of those. But Costello's Democratic opponent had $16,000 in the bank. That's it. In April, you can't run a campaign on that in one of the most expensive media markets in the country, and and you know no amount of super PAC spending can you can't you can't pay a single staffer off sixteen thousand dollars. I'm sure he's raised some money since he won the primary, but uh, there are the the House landscape especially is dotted with uh, districts like this where maybe Romney won by a few points, or even a, a lot where Obama carried it, but are now represented by a Republican member of Congress where. Uh, the Democratic challengers just don't really have any juice. Okay, so I want to pull this back for our final lightning round here to the question that this conversation is highlighting, which is really Donald Trump still has problems with the Republican base. He's got anxious Senate candidates in key districts around the, in key states around the country who aren't sure about endorsing him, who are even rescinding their endorsements. He's got jittery donors. Uh, who aren't sure they want to give money to a potentially losing cause. Ken has a great story out this morning pointing out that, you know, Republican officials are even quietly assuring those jittery Republican donors, well, how about you give to the party and we'll find a way to make sure that it doesn't get uh, too much uh, going to the presidential campaign's benefit. How much does Donald Trump still have a problem? Is he still trying to lock down his Republican base? What do you guys make of these last-ditch, you know, sort of, Fated to die, never Trump efforts looking towards the Republican convention in July. Lightning round. Eli, you get to go first. Well, I think in terms of the convention, the, he has not tamped down the chatter about, uh, you know, the nuclear option of the Rules Committee and unbinding the delegates. And so that's something you're going to continue to hear about because he's limping into this convention. And we have myriad examples this week of how not unified the Republican Party is. Marco Rubio deciding, hey, I am going to run for Senate. Well, Donald Trump's trailing by almost double digits in Florida. So what did he do? He announced and, and went out of his way to criticize the presumptive nominee of his party. Not a new look for Marco Rubio, but, you know, they're all trying to walk that tightrope. You've got Michigan, a state that Trump is targeting, where the governor says, I'm not endorsing you. You've got Colorado, another swing state where the most vulnerable congressman, Mike Kaufman, in a district that was redrawn a couple of years ago, forced him to learn Spanish because the district got so Hispanic. There's no way in hell he's going to endorse Donald Trump. And so you have example after example after example in every swing state around the country of people. Yeah, there are some districts where it makes sense to sort of align yourself with Trump. But for the most part, there are probably more examples 
of Republicans making that calculation that it's probably best to keep your distance. You may have to say, yeah, I support our nominee, because you're going to keep getting that question until you say that or, or come up with a clear answer. But example after example of the fact that this party is probably not going to be unified the way we think of a unified party heading into a fall election. Trump's Republican problem. Uh, I think that realistically, there's not that I don't think there's anything that can be done at the convention. I mean, it, it would just risk too much. The guy got more votes than any other Republican primary presidential candidate in, in, a, in a Republican primary. He has support out there among the populace. Uh, and they would sit home or they would revolt or they would vote for Gary Johnson. They would do anything to retaliate against a Republican Party that was seen as uh, not just ignoring the will of the, of the voters, but actually actively sticking their finger in the eye of, of the voters. So I don't think that that's a real risk. That said, I do think that the Trump folks are taking it seriously. We had a story this week. We uh, got got a readout of a conference call where they uh, bu- they were uh, talking about building this huge whip team. Uh, they had actually already built this huge whip team and were building a database of all the delegates of the convention. It's it's one of the few areas where I think the Trump campaign actually has a serious infrastructure, and that's because they do remain concerned about the prospect that it could be snatched uh, away from Trump. The Republican, that said, the Republican elite do remain very skeptical and wary of getting on the Trump train. And that's what we were talking about, alluding to with the RNC. They want to make sure that if Trump does go south, and, you know, it's it's early, but <laughs> the possibility of him totally tanking and it being a lost cause months before the general election is, is, is real. Um, and they want to make sure that they're covering their you-know-whats uh, in case in case he, be, he be, does become not just a, a lost cause, but really toxic for these down-ballot candidates. So the RNC is gathering resources to, to uh, potentially direct them down-ballot, like we saw in 1996 when Bob Dole uh, sort of emerged as a lost cause, and the RNC shifted the money and the resources and the time and the staff resources away from Dole down ballot to try to save the Senate. I think we could potentially see a repeat of that unless Donald Trump really gets his act together. Charlie, last word. I agree with uh, Eli that it would be a heavy lift to oust him as the nominee right now. But I would say it is not a certainty that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. Because think about what's out there right now, Uh, all that anxiety. There are questions about uh, his money. There are questions about his ground game. There are questions about his organization. There are questions about whether he's ideologically in sync with the party. I mean, it is June. The the convention is a month away. And he is meeting with evangelical leaders because he hasn't locked down them either. And think about all the forces driving... uh, a challenge to Donald Trump. I mean, there is a conscience play to be made from people that are uh, very straightforward in their opposition to what he stands for and what he might do to the party, and he hasn't assuaged any of their their concerns. And also, there is an ambition play. These are the most ambitious people in the world. (laughs) There is a lane here, whether it's 2020 or 2024, and somebody is going to fill that lane. The best way to do it is to be the white knight who takes on Donald Trump. A provocative thought to end us uh, with this week. Thank you to everybody uh, for uh, a lot of good number slinging and a lot of good geeking out on 2016. Wow, thanks for a great conversation to everybody, and thank you to joining us on this week's edition of the Politico 2016 Nerdcast. I hope you'll subscribe to us on iTunes, listen to us on SoundCloud, 
Subscribe to us on Stitcher or wherever your favorite podcast app is. We'll look forward to being back with our regular host, Kristen Roberts, next week for the Nerdcast. Nerdcast.